Good morning, and greetings in Jesus' name. I, too, want to uh, welcome our visitors among us. We're glad that you chose to worship with us this morning, and I hope that you can be blessed by being here. We're happy for your presence. So, as you regulars know, um, I have been going through the seven ordinances of the Mennonite Church, and just for the sake of our visitors, the Mennonite Church has seven ordinances that they ascribe to, and they are baptism, communion, foot washing, the holy kiss, the Christian woman's veiling, marriage, and anointing with oil. I've covered baptism and communion. We're going to move on to the ordinance of foot washing this morning and look at that a bit. The next five that we'll be looking at are somewhat unique to um, conservative Mennonites, I guess you could put it that way. Some of our friends that would be um, share doctrinal um, positions with us may share these as well, but um, larger Christendom would not um, would not view these as ordinances necessarily. So we're all familiar with this ordinance of foot washing. Um, those of us that would have grown up in a in a Mennonite setting anyway would would very quickly uh, coordinate uh, the ordinance of foot washing as being observed during our communion time. That's no news to anybody. I would just like to read what our statement of faith says about this uh, particular uh, ordinance. And this is the revised version here, by the way. It goes like this. This ordinance is to be observed regularly in connection with communion and in harmony with our Savior's teaching and example in John 13. The practice of the literal observance of foot washing symbolizes the willingness of each brother and sister in the brotherhood to engage in humble, voluntary service to his brother or sister as the opportunity presents itself. This particular uh, ordinance has its roots in a very cultural custom that people in the New Testament era would have been very, very familiar with. And we have a few incidences in the Old Testament where this took place in a very cultural way. And I'm going to refer to them. We won't necessarily turn to them. If you wish to jot the, uh, the reference down, you may. I think I'll just refer to them for the sake of time. But we have uh, six Old Testament examples and one in the New Testament. So the first one we have comes in Genesis 18, when you'll remember in that chapter that Abraham had some heavenly visitors that came to him and wanted to talk to him a little about what was going to happen at Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember that account. And when, when Abraham saw those people, it says that uh, he got some water for them to wash their feet. That's what he did. That's the first, uh, that's the, uh, that's one of the things he did to show hospitality to his visitors. He uh, killed a calf that day too, if you'll remember, and he put him under a tree and he said, there, eat it. And he gave them water to wash their feet. One chapter later, when these heavenly visitors show up at Lot's house, Lot offers the same hospitality. He gave them water as well to wash their feet. And um, in Genesis 24, 
When Abraham's servant Eliezer is looking for a wife for his master's son Isaac, and he he comes by Rebecca. Rebecca takes him to the to her father's house there. Again, the same thing happened. Uh, one of the first things that happened is the household got water for the servants' feet and the servants of the servants. So I'm not sure how many that was, but they all got an opportunity to do that. Genesis 43, Joseph's brothers on their second trip to Egypt. Uh, again, specific mention is made that water is given to them to wash their feet. Now, in these four instances, it's interesting to me that water was given... But it said they washed their own feet. So, um, just interesting little aside that um, that there's no, by the reading of the verse, certainly no indication that anybody did it for them. The water was just given to them. But, in Judges 19, um, and if the last few chapters in Judges is probably some of the most darkest and most grievous readings in the Old Testament... Just some horrible things took place in those last few chapters. But in the middle of this dark hour in the, uh, in the time of, of the Israel, the nation of Israel, we have this, we have this Levite in Judges 19 that's wandering around with his concubine getting from point A to point B. And he, he comes by this city and he's gonna lodge in the street at night because it said nobody would take him into his house. But this old man that's returning from the field, sees these people, see, or sees this Levite and his concubine there in the street, and he knew, he knew the, the people of that city, and he knew it wasn't safe. And he said, why don't you come lodge with me tonight? And so they ended up doing that. And it specifically says that that old man that returned from the field took the Levite and his concubine, and in that instance it says he gave them water and he washed their feet. He did, he did both in that particular instance. In 1 Samuel 25, there's a, a, uh, the account where uh, you remember how uh, Nabal treated um, David's men very roughly. And we have this, this deal where Nabal ends up dying because of, his, um, because of the happenings of, the, um, of, the, uh, of that story there. It said his heart became a stone and he ended up dying. And so his wife, Abigail ended up becoming the wife of David. Whenever the servants of David were going to fetch Abigail to become David's wife, it says that Abigail fell at the feet of the servants, and she said, I don't want to be anybody's wife. I just want to be a servant that washes feet. Now, I'm putting that in my own words, but that's what she said. The indication there that I, I think becomes very, very clear is that Washing feet was for servants. That's what they did. And, and Abigail says, me, David's wife, I'll just be a servant that washes feet. In Luke 7, we have the only indicator. Well, let's just turn to that one. That's not, uh, that's maybe one we should just turn to here quick. We have this uh, account where this woman comes in to, uh, in to see Jesus. Jesus was in Simon's house, if you remember here. And this, uh, this woman comes in to, uh, to see Jesus. In verse uh, 36, it begins this account. And, um, 
It says in verse 37, this woman who was a sinner, she knew that Jesus was at meat in this Pharisee's house. She brought to him an alabaster box of ointment. And we know the story. She wept, she washed uh, his feet, put on this perfume, dried his feet with her hair. And um, the Pharisee was not exactly, um, well, he, he was a little bit flabbergasted with what was happening, it seems. And Jesus said in verse 40, he said, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And Jesus gives this little parable of the, of the, of the creditor, which had two debtors, one with the 500, the other with the 50. And then he asked Simon, he said, if these two men were forgiven of their debts, which one would love the debtor more? And Simon said, well, the one that was forgiven the most. And Jesus said, well, you've, you've rightly judged. And then in verse 44, here's what Jesus said. He turned to the woman and he said to Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou givest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. We're just going to go right to the, uh, right to the uh, part we want to kind of uh, focus on. Jesus admonishes Simon for not washing his feet. And one is left to wonder why that was overlooked. We could speculate a bit. Um, from the words of Jesus, it seems like it was a, a nicety that was indeed overlooked. Was there no servants available? Did Simon see himself as too good to wash feet? Um, I don't know. Maybe he thought the road between Jesus' house or where Jesus was and the... Uh, and the and his house was uh, maybe it was paved. Maybe Jesus' feet wasn't real dusty, and he took a quick glance whenever Jesus came in and said, "Well, we'll skip that part today." Total conjecture. We don't know. But Jesus somewhat rebuked Simon. He said, um, "You know, you, you could have done better. You could have done better than that." Let's turn to John 13. This is the very familiar passage here that we read twice a year, for sure, and maybe more often at times. The account of of uh, Jesus washing his disciples' feet, and I think we'll just read it. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour has, was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God. He rises from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself. And after he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. 
Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore he said he, ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments, he sat down again and he said, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord. And ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. So let's just reflect on this passage a little bit and try to get some takeaways of, of what Jesus was doing and some lessons we can perhaps learn from this passage. Let's The, the first three verses set the tone of the event a little bit. Jesus knew that his time with these men were, was incredibly short. Very small amount of time, and um, it seems like he wanted to get... He wanted to get a point across and make the biggest impact he possibly could. And he could have resorted in different ways to do that. He could have given an exposition, and he did a bit of that. If we would read further in John, we'd we'd see that he did a a lot of teaching. But on this particular point, I think his mind is thinking, "How how can I most thoroughly impact these men in front of me with the thought that in the kingdom of heaven, service is what it's all about? And so he does this little ob- this little object lesson, and he, and he grabs this towel, he, he gets the water in the basin, and he begins to wash feet. It is very interesting that that is the method Jesus, Jesus used to teach these men servanthood. It also mentions here that Jesus knew that, it, that his hour being come, it says that he loved these people unto the end. And, you know, reflecting even on our Sunday school lesson, when one thinks about how these men reciprocated that love to him in the end, and then think about how he loved them to the end, there's a gulf of difference. He washed the people's feet that not too long hence would completely reject them, run away from them. Say, I'm not going to do that, but then do it, okay? Jesus loved these people unto the end. He loved them in spite of that. It specifically says that the devil now had the heart of Judas, Simon's son, and this guy was going to betray him. Now, as we reflected on the communion uh, the last time, we, we deducted that when one looks at the four accounts of the Gospels, it seems clear that Judas did not partake in the first communion event. However, it's quite clear here, Judas did get his feet washed, Okay. And again, that speaks volumes about the love of Jesus. The man that would betray him with a kiss just hours later, he did so with clean feet. And, and that, is a, that, is, that is humbling. That is, a, that is unbelievable when one thinks about it. Jesus was looking for a way to convey his love to the folks he loved. And this is the way he chose to do it. Again, on the human interest side of things, who was indeed responsible for washing feet? You know, when one, when one thinks about the customary, we're going from point A to point B, 
I arrive at your house, and in today's world, I would shake your hand and open the door and welcome you in. In those days, I would also wash your feet. It was just the common courtesy of the day. So who was who was uh, responsible here in a situation like this where the room is obviously rented? Nobody is a clear host. I mean, Jesus kind of got the crowd together and told them how to do it. You know, this room over here, you know, let's reserve this room or whatever. Who's responsible? And in, in, in a situation like that, is it just expected nobody does it? Or... I don't know. Again, speculation, and I don't know that anybody knows the answer. But I think it came as an absolute, complete shock that Jesus, of all people, would do it. I really think that really shocked the disciples. And I also think the disciples missed a golden opportunity here, an absolutely golden opportunity to show their love and dedication to Christ. I wonder... I wonder if part of what was going through Peter's mind whenever Jesus came around with that basement, he said, hold up, you're not doing it to me. I wonder if in him, inside himself he just wasn't kicking himself. Like, why did I not think of that? Why didn't I do that? I should be the one washing feet. I'm going to give Peter the benefit of the doubt a little bit. I wonder if he didn't realize he really missed an opportunity. All right. What are some lessons here we can learn from this simple event? Well, the one that is uh, profoundly obvious, Jesus told him in the latter verses that we read, he said, you call me Master and Lord. And he said, you do well. That, that, you're correct. You're exactly right when you call me that. All, all those titles are correct, and, and they are, they are uh, you know, it, and that's, that's correct. But because he was that, he was the least likely candidate for the job. And I tried to think, is there, what would be something today that would be equally just out of the realm? And, and I had to think of something like, what if, you know, President Trump would shuck off his, um, his suit for a day and put on some bib overalls, grab a pitchfork, and not telling anybody would come to my house looking for calf pens to fork out. You know, I'm not doing this for a photo op. I'm just doing it because this is what I want to do to serve Dwight today. Unbelievable. It just wouldn't happen. It just would not happen. And, and that's the closest I could come to what was happening here. I think that's, that's what, um, that, that probably, that probably is somewhat the way these disciples' minds were running. I think the lesson is clear. In the kingdom of God, we are all servants of God, and we all serve each other. Galatians 5.13 For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. In the kingdom of God, everybody is equal. Nobody deserves more or less of me because of who I am or who they are. We're all equal. Jesus taught this principle over and over and over again. The, um, the account in Matthew 20, and it's repeated in some of the other Gospels. Whoever is chief among you, let him be your servant. Whenever we think humanly, we always thinks, think in terms of rank and appropriateness of a job. Or privilege in relation to 
status and societal standing. I, I, that's the way we think. That's what creates classes in society. That's why you have an upper class and a middle class and a lower class. It, it's all about how we think about things, what's appropriate. You know, I, I get onto a few large dairies in, uh, in my um, uh, the, the, the selling seed. We get onto a few large dairies. And when I walk onto a large, when I say large, 1,000 cow plus dairy, immediately you, you, have a, you have kind of a range of people. But in my mind, I know, I know the people that are dark-skinned and speak Spanish, they are not the people that are running the show. They are the people milking the cows. I know that. Now, there's a few exceptions to that. There is ways you can move up the, uh, the ladder of management and so on. So it's not, a, it's not all clearly defined. But nine and a half times out of ten, the, the people that are in management have a different color skin. I'm just being bluntly honest. That's the way it is. And I know that. I sort through that whenever I... So I'm not approaching the, the man that can't speak English and saying, hey, can we talk about seed? I know that's, that's not going to get me where I want to go. So we think of this in, in human terms. In the kingdom of God, class has to be a non-factor. Our salvation and the cost of it it doesn't matter what my IQ is, what language I speak, what my privilege is, what my societal status is in whatever. It costs the same. Absolutely the same. And I am beholden to my master to serve my brothers because of it. Serve my master and serve my brothers. No position in God's kingdom dismisses us from serving each other in whatever way or opportunity that... It, it presents itself. The Bible says that Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant. Now I am happy to say that in my lifetime I have been served. I have been. And I feel like I've been served more than I have served. And as I, as I think about that, I, I, um, I'm humbled. And I just want to thank you for the servant heart that I feel in this congregation. It speaks volumes to me, and I know the Lord takes notice of it. And I certainly want to be a servant as well. Let's be faithful in being servants. Lesson number two. We are called to serve all people. Now, the Bible does say that we should especially serve people that are of the household of faith. Galatians 6.10 clearly says that. But the fact that Jesus, or I'm sorry, Judas got his feet washed somewhat tells me that we shouldn't make a lot of ado about who the person is if, if service is needed and it can be done in a godly way and it will promote the name of the Lord, the person should be served. Now that does not mean that some propriety and some... some um, we shouldn't use any rationalization at all. We certainly are not going to serve a person if, if, if in the end that service will do them harm in some way. For sure not that. Um, you know, just a random case in point. I mean, if somebody needs cigarettes, is it really doing them a, a service to buy them cigarettes? I mean, that's a way out there, but you, you get my point. But any way that we can serve a person... Um, I don't think a lot of uh, a lot of um, thought should go into 
does this person deserve it? It should be, can I be a witness for Christ as I serve this person? You know, I don't know how you find it, but sometimes I find it easier to serve some people than others. If I know that my service will not be appreciated, or if the person that I am serving believes he deserves the service, or if I sort of feel like I could use the service just as much as he does, you know, that, 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 that makes it a little harder, doesn't it? You know, Jesus could have thought the same thing. I, I, I feel like Jesus' feet was just as dirty as the disciples that day. Or maybe perhaps even dirtier. And Jesus could have just sat there and said, you know what? What a bunch of rogues. You know, why don't somebody get the water and wash feet here? You know, why, why should I wash these people's feet? Um, you know, he would have had a thousand excuses and, and probably they would have all been legitimate. But Jesus picks up the towel, the basin, the water, and he washes feet. It's also interesting that Jesus washed everyone's feet. All right? When we do feet washing, I wash one person's feet. Jesus did them all that day. He washed all 12 people's feet. He could have taken the, the basin and he could have started there with whoever, James, and washed his feet, and then he could have said, Now, James, I want you to take the, the basin now, and I want you to wash John's feet, and just moved along, and everybody could have taken turns. He could have done that. That would have been fine, and a lesson could have been taught. Jesus did them all. And it does not say that Jesus' feet got washed. It doesn't say it did. I'm not saying it didn't, but it doesn't say that it did. Have you ever heard of the old, uh, the old uh, little saying that uh, the horse that pulls gets beat? Do you ever feel that way? You know, why am I the one that has to do all the serving? Why can't I be served once, you know? Did, did, that, did that ever go through your mind? And I won't ask you to raise your hand. But um, probably we've all struggled with that at some point. Jesus told a parable one time of a man that worked in the field all day, and when he came in, he had to make supper yet for his master. And Jesus said he did it without complaining, because he realized that that was his duty to do. Indeed, I think Jesus taught that lesson here. He washed everybody's feet. He was the horse that was pulling and probably beat, and yet he did it, and he did it cheerfully. Lesson number three. Do you ever think about that nobody ever aspires to be a servant? Did you ever hear of anybody going to college and they walked away with a degree in how to be a servant? Being a servant, that's what we're going to do. That's, that's our life's goal, is to be a servant. You know, accolades go to people with letters behind their names. Smart people who figure out how to make a living in white colors and make six-digit numbers, or maybe even seven. You know, that's that's the aspiration. Let's be honest. That's what... The world sets out there for us as goals. And while I'm not saying those things are inherently wrong, the point I'm making is you never hear of anybody aspiring to be a servant. That's not what you aspire to be, see. I never heard of degrees for pitching manure or milking cows or weeding gardens, changing diapers or mucking out basements. Those things don't get, you don't get a degree for those things, see. And the reason you don't is because being a servant is just plain down hard work. And you really don't have to be all that smart to do it. You can generally, anybody can pull that one off. 
But I'm equally sure that each of us understands the satisfaction that comes from doing something for someone else and nobody knows but God. That is incredibly satisfying. Because you know that God knows that. And you know that you have served in the name of Christ. And Jesus says this in Matthew 10. He says, If you will but give one cup of cold water in my name to one of these little ones, that will not go without reward. That may be mundane. It may be unnoticed. But it will not be without reward. I guess I'll tell this little story just because it's amazing the things a person remembers. But 20 plus years ago, I think it was the first year we were here, maybe, Ellis and Dawn invited uh, us over for supper, and Warrens were there too. Remember that, Warren? No, you don't remember. You were part of the story, so anyway. Anyway, so we're there, and uh, we're having supper, and, you know, just randomly having a good con- a conversation. Jorgen was a quite a small lad at that time, maybe three, four, four, I don't know, three, four years old, whatever, small little lad. One, you know, the, the size of person that you never quite know what will come out of their mouth, right? And so uh, he, he randomly announced that, that he asked the question, he said, do you know what I want to be when I grow up? And we're all waiting for the answer. We thought perhaps a roofer like his father or, or you know, we, we didn't know. But so we all did the courteous thing. No, what would you like to be when you grow up? And he said, I'd like to be a worker. And I just remember Warren saying, we can always use more of those. <laughs> and I thought, well, how true, how true. <laughs> so, you know, I, I did, I'll never forget that because, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the aha moment. And he said, I want to be a worker. And, uh, and Warren had a very appropriate response. We can always use more of those. And so, indeed, we can. And I would, uh, I would say we should all aspire to that. Lesson number four. This ordinance teaches us that even mundane work should be done well and completely. Jesus took the towel and he girded himself, he washed the feet, and then he dried them. And I think I borrow that from, from Dennis's exhortation he had on feet washing here a few years ago. And, and that stuck with me. The Bible says, do not be slothful in business. Now what that, in our language that should read, don't be slothful in diligence. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, the Bible says. And the reason it says we, could, we should do that, it says, Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the, the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. You know, it is expected, almost expected today, that any person that holds a job, quote, quote, is a servant, okay, that they will whine about their job and they will do just as much as they have to to stay hired. That's pretty much the way it is, pretty much. I remember a few years ago running into a guy that he was a servant. That's what he did. I don't know. He he, he just held a, a blue-collar job that wasn't all that spectacular. But this guy had a buoyancy about him that you rarely find. And his his testimony about his job is, I love my job. And it was just so refreshing to hear that. It's like there's so few people that will say that. Lesson number five. This ordinance also teaches us a lesson in cleansing. Now, there's a very, very interesting um, verse here. Verse 10. 
Jesus says to Peter, he says, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, but ye are clean, but not all. Now, we often read over that verse, and we just go, hmm, and we move on. But if you look closely, those two words, wash, are two different Greek words. The first one means bathed. The second one means specifically to wash hands or feet. What Jesus, what, what Peter initially said, I want a bath. That's what he said. You know, wash everything. Jesus said, no, no, we're not going to do that. Or no, he initially said, don't wash at all. And Jesus said, no, if, you, if I don't wash you, you don't have a part with me. Then he said, well, give me a bath. Jesus said, no, we're not going to do that. Either. We're going to wash your feet. I think there's a, subtle, there's a subtle lesson here for us to learn. You know, when we initially come to Jesus as a sinner in need of salvation, we get a bath. That's what we do. Jesus gives us a clean heart. He bathes us. After that's done, there's still the there's still the constant need to wash ourselves of the grime and grit of the world, and I think that ordinance of foot washing somewhat uh, gives that lesson. Daily, we need to repent. Daily, we need to ask Jesus for for power to live above sin. Daily, we need to be alert to the grime and the grit of the world, and I think there's a subtle lesson here for us. We don't need, perhaps, the bath. And maybe we do need baths more often than what we, than what we take them. But um, I think there is indeed a lesson of that daily. The Bible talks about the washing of water by the word, daily immersing ourselves into the word, etc., to cleanse ourselves from the world's grip. All right. This last part of, the, uh, of this uh, topic, I would like to pose the question... Does God really expect you and me to take out basins twice a year and sit down and literally wash your feet? Does he? I will admit that as I researched this, I came across some interesting things that I'll share with you, and then we'll come back and we'll answer that question at the very end. For some odd reason, I was somewhat under the impression that uh, this ordinance was... Um, pretty much anabaptistic in its in its practice. That would have been the the impression I would have been under, I guess. In my research, I came across some uh, some interesting uh, stuff that uh, pointed out that other groups, whether and I'm not condoning these groups when I say this, I'm just pointing it out, that uh, Seventh-day Adventists, for one, and Primitive Baptists, for sure, practice this ordinance, or what we would call an ordinance. And I wasn't ready just to take Google's um, um, answers, so I contacted a person from each group, and I said, does this happen in your church? And I got the affirmative. It was interesting to me that in the Seventh-day Adventist church, it happens four times a year. One of the things that they specifically do as they practice it is that if there is somebody that they know they are struggling in a relationship with, they will search that person out to wash his feet. I thought that was interesting. In the in the Primitive Baptist Church, uh, one interesting thing there that I found from my friend that informed me of what happens there is that it is practiced every month. One Sunday out of every month it happens. So just an interesting um, interesting little um, tidbit that I thought, um, yeah, was just interesting.
So how have we, how has the church, starting back in the New Testament era to this time, how has it practiced foot washing? Well, number one, let's, let's go ahead and, and, and I think it's obvious that it was a cultural practice that indeed Jesus gave a spiritual meaning to. I think we can all, that's, that's not disputable. It's also not disputable that we don't really have any account in Acts where this specifically takes place, but there is a very interesting verse in 1 Timothy, and you're all familiar with that, where it's talking about widows that deserve help from the church, basically. And it says, if she has washed the saints' feet. Now, it doesn't say if she has washed her neighbor's feet. It says specifically, if she has washed the saints' feet. Would give some credence or some uh, credibility to the uh, to the fact that the saints specifically had their feet washed in some way, shape, or form in those days. Very little is written in the early church history, if you will, about this practice. A little bit, enough that we know that it was practiced, but we don't have a lot of detail how it was practiced, but we know it was. If we run down through like the, uh, into the 12th and 13th centuries, we begin to get into somewhat more recent history, and we have some of the uprisings of some of the Reformation, well, pre-Reformation churches, some, such as the Waldensians and the Albigenses. Both of those groups would have practiced foot washing. Interestingly enough, the Waldensians practiced it only on uh, visiting ministers. So just interesting. Uh, if you were a visiting minister, you got your feet washed. How about our Anabaptist Mennonite tradition? How has how have we practiced it? I will not give you bog you down with a lot of detail. I will speak very simplistically. In simplistic terms, the Holland Anabaptist practiced it. All right, so they did, and so thus branches that can trace their roots back to Holland likewise practice it, such as the Anabaptists in northwest Germany, east and west Prussia, and Russia. Now again, speaking very simplistically, the Swiss Brethren and Hutterites did not practice it. And so, therefore, the Anabaptists in south and central Germany likewise never practiced it. Out of all the confessions of faith, in the, in the, uh, that the European Anabaptists came up with from 1527 to 1874. Twelve speak of feet washing as an ordinance. Nine omit the, the mention altogether. And even in Holland, where it was universally practiced, it wasn't all in the same way. And again, it seems interesting that the, the difference was in some Churches, some groups practice it as somewhat of an ordinance like we would regularly, somewhat the way we would practice it. Others, again, it was to visiting ministers. I, I just find that interesting that that's the, that's the way it kind of shook out. The practice of feet washing completely died out in Europe. And I'm going to quote to you a historian that writes specifically about this um, this particular decline. The decline of, of this practice was largely to due largely to secularization and compromising influences in the church. Along with the loss of this practice, the European Mennonites have gradually lost almost all beliefs that they once held as distinctive. And he gives three reasons. He says, 
the ridiculing of mainstream churches of the Anabaptists of the peculiar beliefs that they held and their emphasis on fringe doctrines rather than cardinal beliefs stimulated them to question, them being the Anabaptists, Mennonites, to question some of their literalistic practices. Many Mennonites abandoned this practice as a result of a re-examination of their beliefs in favor of a more cardinal emphasis. The spiritual concept came to be emphasized as being sufficient without the external act. The liberal tendencies which began in the 18th century, especially through Mennonite seminary in Amsterdam, was influential in changing the trajectory of the entire church. And because the more conservative element was constantly emigrating in the 19th century from German, Germany and France in search of religious freedom, the liberalizing tendencies gained the upper hand. So it's just a one historian's uh, reflection on why it came not to be practiced in, in Holland and other European um, Mennonite groups. In North America, we have had somewhat of a unique uh, unique history as well, and again, I won't, won't belabor it long, but I found it interesting that the very first North American Mennonite settlement, which would have been Germantown, Franconia, never practiced feet washing until after about 1900. And one is left to guess why that might be. My best guess is that if the Swiss Brethren did not, and that was the, the original colony um, in the New World, perhaps they just did like they did in the old country, and they just didn't practice it. But interestingly enough, after about 1900, uh, for a period of about 50, 60 years, the Franconia Conference did indeed practice foot washing. It was a, during a time when there was much... Um, much attempt made at, at making the practices of the Mennonite Church um, unified, I guess, through the influence of Daniel Kaufman and so on. But, in, but it's also interesting to me that they were somewhat of an anomaly, that they did not practice foot washing at communion time. They practiced it at, at another event. So um, they, they kind of split, the, uh, split the two apart a bit. And this doesn't matter, but I found it, again, just as a human interest. Um, some of us are familiar with a man named uh, Joseph Funk. He was the, uh, the music man there in Virginia. Uh, actually, I think Singer's Glen is named after him, I think. Yeah, anyway. Joseph Funk, um, as much influence as he had on the Mennonite Church through his music and so on, um, interestingly enough, as a small lad, his, his father, Henry, had moved from from Franconia Conference down to Virginia there. So he grew up in Virginia, but apparently some of the influences from Franconia Conference followed them down there. Joseph grew up opposed to feet washing, and he actually wrote a little pamphlet about it. Um, and I'm going to read to you what uh, just a sentence out of that. He goes, I trust that my beloved brethren, when they are engaged in literal feet washing, will not forget that through the depravity of our corrupt nature and our earthly mindedness, we stand in need of daily washing from the blood that flowed from Calvary, and that we all wash each other's feet in a figurative and spiritual sense as well. All right, so I just found that interesting that you had these, these people here and there that actually took a, a completely opposite view of what we would of what we would think of. Well, as I mentioned, uh, <clears throat> Daniel Kaufman's influence on the church, and he had a huge influence on the church in the late 18 and early 1900s, 
decidedly put feet washing in as an ordinance and pretty near all Mennonite churches in the early 1900s would have practiced it. And of course, we're all familiar with the major shift that underwent the Mennonite church in the mid and late 1900s. And pretty much the way that shook out is those, the conservative element that left the Mennonite church during those times have solidly practiced it as a literal practice and others, it has been somewhat left up to interpretation. Some do, some don't. Now, I just point these things out to, just so we know that there has not been a universal practice of this through time. However, there has always been somewhat of an interpretation of the way we practice it from way back even until now. So let's circle back to the question. Should we do it literally? Should we? Well, many people would say not. Many people, as, as, as I mentioned with the Dutch Mennonites, they say, well, you know, there's a, there's a deeper meaning. We're going to go for the more cardinal meaning, and we're not going to, uh, to practice it literally. There's a measure of truth to that. As I mentioned in my very first sermon on these particular ordinances, there is a real danger when we practice things literally that we will indeed forget the deeper meaning. There's a, there's a real danger in that. It happened in the Old Testament. Whenever Saul offered a sacrifice and Samuel said, why did you do that? And he said, well, I had to. Samuel said, no, you didn't. The Lord would rather you obey than to offer a sacrifice. And you can go back and read Isaiah 58. Same thing. Isaiah's telling the people, you're fasting and you're doing all these things and the Lord actually detests it. He says, and this is what he says about fasting. He says, this is the fast that God has chosen. He wants you to loose the bands of wickedness to undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. He said, that's the fast God's looking for. He's not looking for you to go without dinner for a few days. So there's truth to that. There's truth that we can forget the cardinal side of things whenever we do things literally and feel real good about it because we perform the literal. However, God is a God that is known for his symbols. Okay? Read through the Old Testament, and you will find that out very quickly. Come into the New Testament, you'll see it again. God is a God of symbols. Why does God like symbols? Well, I, I'm not exactly sure, but I, there's just a couple of things that came to my mind. Symbols do help us to remember who we are in relation to who God is. Okay, that is, by and large, if you look at the symbols, why did they pick up those stones out of the Red Sea, or not the Red Sea, the Jordan, when they came over and put them there? It was a symbol of who God was and who they were. And it is good for us to systematically and regularly stop and think about the deeper things of life. And to do that symbolically is a good thing. I will say this. I believe in the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you read carefully, what God desires of people is the heart. But he is blessed whenever we are willing to go that second step and just do it literally as well. I want both. That's what I want. I, I want to please God in every way I can. And I realize that God wants me to be a servant. That's what he wants. That's why he did that. That's what he was trying to teach me. But I think God is blessed when we as his people say, I'm so, I'm so intent on being a service. I'm willing to do this two or four times a year or whatever it is just so I remember what I'm here for and what I should be doing. 
That word there in verse 17 is that, yeah, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Now that word happy is the same word that is translated blessed in the Beatitudes. I don't know why it's happy here, but we could say blessed. And we talk about the Beatitudes and say, well, why don't we put the word happy in there? And we often say, you know, happy just doesn't carry enough weight. I question if happy carries enough weight here either. Blessed are the people that do that. Do you want blessed? Anybody want blessed here today? I want blessed. I think I think it is a good thing. I think we are served well whenever we, A, we practice feet washing twice a year and every day in between. This winter, I was up at Alan's place and we worked for an hour getting his truck and trailer dug out of a snowbank. It was, it was, it was hard and dirty work. We got stuck. And when I was done, Alan said, thanks for washing my feet. And, and, and that, and he, that was appropriate. That, that's exactly what washing feet looks like between spring and fall. So, I hope you were challenged as I was. I hope you, um, value the honor that it is to be a servant. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father, we come to you at the close of this service. And Lord, we are so humbled to think that um, you as God came to, man, came to earth as a man. You took on the form of a servant and you did servant's work. And Lord, as we look at it, we see that it was a very thankless job and you did it for us. And because you did it for us, we should do it to each other. Lord, I just pray that you would give us servant's hearts. Lord, just help us to realize the blessing that comes from being a servant and to realize that it really is only our duty to do. Lord, bless each one of the people in this audience that have served and served well. Lord, I uh, I thank you for the service that I have received. And Lord, I just pray that a blessing would be bestowed on each servant heart in this room today. Lord, help us to go forth renewed to serve you, to serve others, and to serve the world. We ask this in your name. Amen.